0: Welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So back joining me today for another chat about paediatrics is Dr. Mark Worrell. Mark is a paediatric intensivist at the Royal Hospital for Sick Children in Glasgow. He works doing some retrieval with the paediatric wing of Scotstar and is a responder support clinician for Basic Scotland. Mark, thanks for coming back to chat to us today about post ros care in kids. Thanks for having me. I mean, let's face it, paediatric cardiac arrest is going to be one of the most horrendous things that you've ever dealt with and let's say that we get a good outcome and the numbers say that's not beyond the pale without an even more difficulty because we've got a kid and a much more complex algorithm to think through
1: yeah so getting raw great effort but that's only just the start of the journey for this child so there's a lot more things than we need to do to train to support their organs that might need supporting and trying to prevent them having another respiratory arrest
0: Now, I know that we've talked about adult ROSC before, and I'm guessing that there are going to be some parallels that come across. And we've also talked about dealing with life support in kids. So it's probably worth kind of drawing on those other podcasts as well. But let's take it from that first point at which you can feel a pulse and potentially see signs of life. How do you approach these kids?
1: Well, I think if you've got signs of life, then you need to confirm that you've got a pulse, is what you've said. And previous podcasts have talked about the value of anti CO2. It's a pulse you need to make sure you've got. And then if you've hopefully, as you said, got return of spontaneous circulation, it's taking on the A, B, C, D approach again and starting from the top and reassessing the patient and seeing where you are. It's kind of of a regroup really, isn't it? Because you've put a lot of effort in to get ROSC, which is excellent. But it's then to start again to thinking A, B, C, D,
0: E. It's really interesting. Yeah, I find it's it's worth kind of having a big gulp of oxygen at this point. It's a complete mindset change away from that nice, comfortable algorithm into all of the usual uncertainties about the A to E approach.
1: Absolutely. But I think you've got to hang things on what you normally do in adults with A, B, C, D and E and then just think about the little differences in the equipment and the doses again. But but I think you just need to take it on to basics because the biggest thing that's going to help this child at that point is doing the basic things well.
0: Okay, so we're going to start with airway and make sure that we're managing to pass a reasonable volume of air and oxygen into the kids' lungs. Yes. Now, end CO2 we've kind of mentioned in the past, and clearly that's going to be a benefit if we have it available.
1: I think so, yeah, entire CO2 is going to be useful. And that's coming back maybe into the D section, thinking about CO2 management and thinking about prevention of secondary brain injury. But CO2 is quite a useful tool because it tells you that you've got CO2 coming out, so you're ventilating the lungs. It tells you you've got blood going round and round, so it tells you a bit more about what the cardiac output is doing. And then the CO2 can also be used to think about what the blood vessels in the brain are doing because that's specifically one of the things we will be thinking about in post-ROS care is cerebral
0: perfusion. So without heading too much into the weeds of fairway management in kids, because it's a topic that we might come back to, let's sort of park that and look at B. How do you approach B in that kind of post-ROSC world?
1: Okay, so you need to maintain oxygenation and that's the most important bit really. And We can sort out any acidosis due to high CO2 after that. If we were manually ventilating, we'd be aiming for a normal entire CO2. Hypoxia is what you want to prevent and that's going to ultimately prevent a further arrest and it's also going to help maintain oxygen delivery to the major organs. If you've got a gastric tube and you've got the expertise of inserting one of these, you might want to consider doing this at this point. The reason in children this is probably more important is the stomach when it's full of gas can actually impede the movement of the left diaphragm and this can have consequences on oxygen uptake from the lungs. So thing about B, we want to be looking for any causes of this arrest from a breathing component and we know in children are more likely to have a, a primary respiratory arrest. You want to do your normal chest examination that you would do in, in your adult practice but you need to think of also about looking for any increased worker breathing such as intercostal session, subcostal session and tracheal tug. We need to pop a oxygen saturation probe on at this point to, to target oxygen saturations of 94 to 98% if the child doesn't have chronic disease. And there's increasing evidence that targeting
0: saturations of 100% is potentially harmful. Glad you touched on this because obviously with neonates we are resuscitating with air rather than oxygen. And do correct me if I'm straying, but so we're, we're not gunning for 100% oxygen. To try and almost catch up on the, the oxygenation downtime, we're aiming for 94 to
1: 98%. Absolutely. So, yeah, the, the time to use as much oxygen as possible is when you were doing resuscitation. You've now got ROSC, it's the time to think about pulling back on the oxygen if you can do Sometimes you can't. And to get SATs to 94 to 98%, you're going to have to have lots of oxygen running, safe as a bag valve mass running at 15 litres per minute. But if there's any way you can try and titrate, that would be optimal.
0: And thinking about things that commonly cause kids to have cardiorespiratory arrests, let's say that this is an asthmatic who's had an arrest secondary to a severe asthma attack. Is there anything that you're going to tweak, anything that you can add in? Because I'm aware that we're not going to be doing a huge amount about the underlying pathology.
1: Yes, asthma is obviously rare but unfortunate causes of cardiovascular arrest, which is the primary respiratory problem. You still need to manage the asthma. So great, you've got ROSC, but you still need to think about the salbutamol nebulizers. You need to think about other drugs that you'll be able to give depending on your clinical circumstances and your location. So working through the normal asthma algorithm is still important.
0: Okay, so... Let's say we have got SATs of 98%, maybe weaned a little bit back on some of the auction that we've been giving, and things are looking okay in an A and B type world. Circulation-wise, you know, in an adult, I'd be looking to put in some access and think about a degree of blood pressure management. But in kids, I'm always a little bit shaky on exactly what blood pressures we should be aiming for, depending on age. It feels like all the usual things that I'm familiar with in adults become less clear.
1: This is where it gets a little bit more complicated is what blood pressure you need to be aiming for because in adults it's a bit easier to know what blood pressure you're going for. For children it all depends on their age and I think this is where you need to be picking up the telephone and asking for help if you've not done that already because it's starting to get into the realms of hospital management for this and you need to have access to the information to know what is the normal blood pressure for this age of child which I think is not always going to be easy to hand.
0: And there are some resources, I know a lot of folk carry JR Calc, the little book that the ambulance services issue, and that's got some information in terms of normal ranges on it, but yeah, it sounds like phone a friend is going to be a very good option.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you've probably done this already or thinking about where you're going to be going to go and meet the friend instead. So it goes on the centiles between the 5th and the 50th centile age for that child is what blood pressure you're going to be aiming for. So yeah, the gel cow does have some blood pressures in there and they may well be useful to use if you haven't got the other blood pressure targets.
0: Okay, now in adults, I would normally give... A degree of fluid, and I'm being deliberately vague about that because it's going to depend a lot on what I see in front of me, and then think about potentially some inotropic support in the form of some adrenaline boluses if I'm struggling with blood pressure. Does any of that change in kids aside from being significantly more terrifying?
1: Yes. So if you're obviously not faced with this normally, it's absolutely going to be terrifying, and the doses are going to be a lot smaller than you use in adults. So. You've got to think about what the pathology is and giving fluid. Is fluid going to be useful in this point here or not? So if you use the example as an asthmatic, they well may actually be underloaded a little bit and need a bit more fluid. Thinking about the right side of the heart might need a bit more fluid to help with that. And if you've got a child that's had sepsis and that's led to them having a sudden deterioration, then fluid's gonna be great for them. But if you've got a child whose cause of their cardiac arrest was cardiac you might not want to give some fluid you you might want to be careful how much you give or if it's a child who's got problems with a chest infection some fluid may be useful but too much fluid will make the lungs wet which will make the situation potentially worse so it's a wishy-washy answer so sometimes it can help sometimes it might not help i think what probably is more pragmatic is give some fluid and see what the response is which is always the ethos of the a b c d e approach and reassessing so use some fluid Warm fluid would be optimal, which is always a challenge here in Scotland. And the vasoactive drugs, I think that's probably depending who you are and where you are and having a conversation may potentially be useful.
0: Yeah, that's going to be having one of you guys on speed dial, I think. Just to kind of tidy up the loose ends with C, usual practicing kids for me is is a three-way tap and a 50 mil syringe and just squirts of fluid as and when and keeping it running total. Is there anything you do differently in terms of logistics for fluid giving? Yeah, so what you're
1: suggesting there is exactly what I would do in my practice is using 50 mil syringes. Obviously, if we were in a community hospital or a hospital, we'd have a pump. And do things, and we keep a tally of what we're doing. But a 50mm syringe attached to a freeway tap, attached to the bag of fluid, to a bag of crystalloid, is perfect. And often I do a tick tally to remember how many we've given because it's very easy to forget how many 50ml syringes you've given. And then depending on how many people you've got in your team, having someone being the scribe and just keeping a tally of what's being given is quite important. So if you've got access to that, it's perfect. If not, writing it down somewhere each time you give a 50ml syringe so you can keep a tally what you've given because it's quite easy to miss a few being written down and give more than
0: you thought. Let's say for the sake of argument that we're going to be in my local Heart sink location, which is going to be the far end of Glen Lyon, and we're going to look at a retrieval team coming in to pick up this kid. Is there anything that we can do from a circulation point of view that would make your lives easier? So, I'm thinking, you know, in an adult, I'd be looking to make sure I've got two decent sized cannulas and checking ECGs and all that sort of thing. Is there any of that that we can do to, to make your lives easier?
1: Do you know, do the same as what you would do in someone who is much bigger. I think yeah, two times IV access or IO access. So it may well be difficult to get to access in children who are critically unwell. And you may have done it already if you've not been able to get IV access. Is but intraosseous access in. One tip about intraosseous access with EasyIO is it comes in three different needle sizes before you're about to press the drill. So you've loaded it on as you would do normally, put it potentially into the tibia if it's a small child per se, correct your correct location. Is put the needle down through the skin, down to the periosteum bone, and make sure you can see a black line on the needle above the skin between the skin and the magnetic bit that attaches to the drill. If you can't see a black line, that easy I/O needle is almost likely going to be too short. And you may well get it in, but it may not be far enough in. And when you give some fluid, it may well tissue. So my top tip is if you need to put an easy IO in is make sure you can see the black line before you start pressing the mechanics of the drill. And you may well need to go up a size to the middle size needle. It doesn't matter if it hangs out too much. The easy IO, if that's the system you've got, has got an adjustable flange on the dressing. so And that can take account of the needle sticking out a bit further. But sometimes putting the smallest one in, it may well not be long enough.
0: It's, yeah, it's quite surprising how few times that small one actually is, <laughs> is the right size.
1: Luckily then, you've not seen too many neonates because it's fine. But As soon as they start getting some subcutaneous tissue and a bit of fat on them and muscle, more muscle, it's not going to be long enough.
0: Let's have a think about D next, and this is where my heart sinks even further. Thankfully, (laughs) I'm definitely going to be on the phone to you guys by this stage. What about dealing with things like seizures and glucose control?
1: Great. I'm glad you've brought those up. So they're probably the two most important things you need to be thinking about, indeed, because the seizures is going to increase how much oxygen you need in your brain, and that's going to potentially worsen any brain insult that may have been caused or may have happened during the cardiovascular arrest. So you think about if they've had a hypoxic injury, then the seizures may be because of that. So dealing with that effectively is really important to reduce any secondary brain injury. And again, exactly the same with glucose. These children often can have a low blood sugar and doing simple things of giving some 10% glucose at two mil per kilo is very useful to try and reduce morbidity and mortality. So those two things need to be treated aggressively as you normally would do.
0: Any particular concerns with BMs being high at this stage or is that in the too difficult box in the pre-hospital environment?
1: I think that's in the too difficult box. I would not be getting any insulin at that point then. We can think about that when we're in somewhere warmer with lots of other people with more infusion pumps and things like that. This child you're describing here will be going to a pediatric critical care unit in Scotland. That will be in Glasgow or Edinburgh. So I think high sugar, that's what it is at the moment. We'll deal with that further down the line, but it's specifically low blood sugar needs to be managed aggressively.
0: And I guess the last bit, and you can choose whether it goes in C, D, or E, is one of my personal bugbears, which is temperature management. Now, you know, this kid, we're going to have cut any clothes off. They're going to have been lying probably on a floor for a potentially extended period of time, potentially outside in the outside world with the elements bust in past. We know kids cool pretty quickly. Equally, I don't want to rush and rewarm a kid who's potentially doing a bit of neuroprotection.
1: Yeah, the evidence is fluctuant I think in this area, but currently I think there's no evidence for any improvement in outcomes for therapeutic temperature management. So keeping them normal thermic is is kind of where we're heading at the moment. But you're right, it's very easy to get a child cold, but much more difficult to warm them up. We'd be aiming to warm them up but slowly because if you warm them up too quickly, they can vasodilate and that can lead to problems with their blood pressure. So it, it's trying to warm them up or trying to stop them getting any colder. And I think there's, there's only certain things you can do in the pre-hospital world. Certainly blankets, putting them in a vac mat is very useful for insulation, and trying to do the basic things. If you're in an ambulance, turn the temperature up as high as possible. So you may well not actually be able to warm them up, but if you've got to be keep an eye on it, because if you start warming up too quickly, they'll vasodilate and could cause more problems.
0: So a gentle rewarming strategy. In adults, I tend to leave heads out of packaging if they've had a cardiac arrest. It's not really selective brain cooling, but but try and keep the rest of them warm. Whether it makes any difference at all, I have no idea. Is that a reasonable approach or, or overkill, do you think?
1: I know of no evidence for that. The only thing I would say is the body surface area in children is much higher and they can lose a lot more heat, especially in the infants and neonates from their head than they would do for an adult. So uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you may need to cover their head up if you are really cold to try and warm them up because they will lose more heat from their head compared to an adult.
0: Brilliant. So you've already mentioned that these guys are going to need some kind of retrieval and some kind of repatriation to a paediatric critical care centre. Aside from having early conversations with a retrieval team, if a downtime between that initial post-ROSC management and you guys rocking up with your hero suits on, what else can we do to try and make your lives easier or to continue to manage this kid? It depends where you are, Dave. So give me an example of where you are and we can work out from there. Let's say we're in somebody's house in the back end of rural Scotland. So,
1: Okay, so if it's out with the healthcare facilities, that'll be EMRS will be coming to there. So they will be able to do all the pre-hospital critical care interventions that have be needed. So it's about having space available for them and thinking about that potentially they may well be doing some advanced airway procedures and they may well be putting some infusions up to help with cardiovascular support potentially. So it's about thinking about what space might they need and actually letting them know where you are. I think that's important.
0: Yeah, certainly in the past, having to go out and work out where I'm going to get a helicopter to land or at least give Mm -hmm. them some options. As you say, yeah, that 360 space, the mountain of kit and toys that they bring with them. And we've already talked about the kind of little things that we can do in terms of access.
1: I think having two routes of access, having some oxygen cylinders available and thinking about space that they're going to need will be important so if you're in someone's house think about where the furniture is can you make some space or children very portable can you move them elsewhere is there an ambulance outside that may well be useful you've got to think about the same thing as adults when you start moving patients who've had a cardiorespiratory arrest you can alter their stroke volume by simply moving them and that can make them unstable so you've got to think about that as well
0: Brilliant. Well, I mean, that's given us a really clear run through of kind of priorities in post-ROSC care in kids and highlighted some of the differences between standard adult practice and stuff that is emerging. And it sounds like there's still quite a lot of research going on in this field.
1: There's ongoing research trying to work out what we can do to reduce the morbidity and the mortality associated with children who have had a cardiac
0: arrest. Well, Mark, that's absolutely brilliant. I'll get you to give us three top tips for responders in that post-ROSC environment.
1: I think use the ABCD approach that you would use then an adult post-ROSC and just tweaking the equipment and the manoeuvres you may well need to do. The inter access is very valuable in children who may be more tricky to get IV access in. And we've talked about that the needle sizes that is a top tip there. And I think phone a friend to work out where it's best for this child to go to
0: and I should probably say you know, apologies in advance if I do end up ringing you there's likely to be a lot of whimpering if I've had to deal with a paediatric arrest and um, yes unlikely to be a little ball of stress I'm sure you'll be fine
1: Dave I think keeping to the basics that you do already
0: will keep you in the right place Mark, that's fantastic thanks so much for joining us again yeah, thank you that's it for this week if you have any comments or questions visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.